Good morning. I am Lauren Anders Brown, an independent documentary filmmaker. Being behind the camera in over 40 countries has resulted in hours, days, terabytes of footage. So much of what happens to make a shoot possible ends up on the metaphorical cutting room floor. Most of my editing used to take place in planes, trains, or whatever available coffee shop had a decent filter single origin coffee and always using the hashtag today's office. Now I am picking up the scraps, reviewing old interviews, and scrolling through my social media to give you a behind the scenes look at what it is like to travel, produce, film, direct, record, alone, as my own correspondent. My first real long-term assignment landed me in Haiti in 2014. This was not my first time to the island. I had been previously in the year and felt such a connection. I accepted my first paid documentary job to film for a hospital. The history of Haiti is difficult to hear at the best of times. Originally founded as a French colony, the French forcibly placed people from Africa on the island to work as slaves on the abundance of farmland, growing all kinds of fruit, and especially sugarcane. It wasn't long before the Haitian population raised the revolution, ending in 1804, marking their place in history as the first black colony to gain their independence. This, of course, came at a price, which was determined by the French to be paid in one of the only currencies available to the colony, wood and timber. Haiti has never recovered from its severe deforestation, and I've always believed the country's beginnings and its ill-fated independence set it up for the continued tragedy of dictators or presidents for life, foreign occupation parading as charitable support, corruption, and natural disasters that continue to pummel the country through hurricane after hurricane and earthquake. The first over a decade ago, and the most recent just a few months ago. Flying over the stark brown, bare mountains is breathtaking for its beauty and its symbolism and all the struggle the people have faced and continue to face. But it's these very strong, resilient, opportunistic people that brought me back. It's always an adventure stepping off a plane into a new country. And in Haiti, the adventure always begins with that first step out of the terminal and into the throngs of people trying to get your business by scooping you up to be your chauffeur or unwillingly taking your luggage from your hand to his and walking it to the taxi and then expecting payment for such a service. The first time this happened, it was by a man with one arm and a limp. The airport arrival over the years became easier as I learned Creole with my first phrase being, Buen gagné chauffeur. I have a driver. Weaving through the tap taps. Tap taps are overflowing pickup trucks with brightly colored roofs. Allowed for what would have felt like a highly dangerous sporting event to feel a bit more comfortable amongst the colors. Three hours of stop-and-go traffic and avoiding broken roads and burning tires had us in the mountains of the Artibonit Valley. I was dropped off at Kai Alumni. Kai means house in Creole, and it was a house built by the original hospital staff who worked there. 
Founded by Larry and Gwen Mellon and named after the great philosopher and doctor, Hôpital Albert Schweitzer was a simple hospital high in the mountains in Haiti, in a place that needed it the most. Serving a population of over 350,000, it is the only hospital for 610 miles, with some people traveling over 10 hours of walking to reach it. My first long stay there had me grow to love the early morning starts by the rooster who was unable to tell the time. The lack of hot water, although I was grateful I didn't have restricted water hours like the rest of the hospital campus, the ways and habits of the staff, and especially the strong Haitian coffee, which I still covet as the only cup of coffee I'd need for the rest of my coffee drinking days, if it ever came to that. But it wasn't all flamboyant trees and mangoes morning, noon, and night, although I would have gladly had that be my full-time diet. There were a lot of difficult conditions and decisions to capture on a daily basis. I once walked into my first full knee replacement surgery halfway through as they were putting some of the reconstructed bone in and had to steady myself from falling over and risking patient sterility. People would come from very far to seek services. I had done one of those hikes before and I consider myself quite athletic, but I was sore for days afterwards. It was those that couldn't seek services that caught my attention one weekend. Early one morning, when I should have been catching up on sleep thanks to my insomniac rooster neighbor, I went out in a tap-tap hired by four doctors who were going out into the field and also sacrificing their few mornings off to help a population few people had ever encountered in Haiti. At best, it could be described as a hereditary condition, only found in the people originating in Touche Moulin. Starting to show signs at around 18, this condition slowly paralyzes the patient to the point where they lose all motor skills to be able to walk or even the simplest of tasks, which could include eating and bathing. The doctors I was with have been keeping records of the patients they visit, and we're about to add a new one to their list. When when did they first start noticing he was having trouble?
Um, Ask him to, to touch my finger. Touch his doigt, monsieur. Touch his doigt, monsieur. I'll touch his nose. Okay, can you touch his nose? Touch his doigt, monsieur, encore? Touch his nose. Encore. Encore. Touch his doigt, monsieur. Ça. Avec mes ça, can you touch his doigt, lui? Touch his nose. Touch his doigt, lui. Yeah, same okay. There's no explanation for how it originated or a cure for it, and unfortunately that means it is difficult to inspire people to even care about it. Dr. Caraway has been visiting Tushmalun for years, and I learned, with a little bit of humility on my own part, how he's been pushing through to deliver aid to the people affected by this disease. <coughs> So what have you discovered in Tushmalan? Uh, um, and I know it started with the melons, uh, but if you could just, the background. Uh, well, actually, it started with a man called Matt Dylan Waugh. And he was a friend of the, the melons. And for people who know the institution well, they'll know that he was the man who made the cardboard casket for Dr. Mellon when he was, after he, he died. Um, he had a number of projects. I always thought of him as being the Haitian Dr. Mellon on the other side of the uh, valley. But one of the projects that he had that was so important to him was these group of crippled individuals at that time, about seven or eight, that had uh, been living in this community of Tushmalin. And when we went over to examine the need there, we found that these people who had considerable needs just weren't being taken care of by anybody. What were their needs? What exactly, what did the, the people of Tushmala need? Well, this is a degenerative neurologic problem that starts late teens, and they start with tremors and and then difficulty walking. And by the time they're 25 or so, they're largely uh, unable to walk and leave their houses. Uh, so we, uh, the, the obvious need was that they needed food and clothing and these basic life necessities. And so we started to bring that over to them uh, on a monthly basis to help out. How did it feel to see a disease you were unable to offer medical aid to? Frustrating. <laughs> Can you tell me in a complete sentence? Um, well, frustrating because uh, there, for this particular disease, as there as other diseases, there's really no um, cure, there is no treatment, and you can only support the bodily functions as they are in this situation. And how have you helped to improve the quality of life for the people in uh, Tushmalan? Well, uh, they probably would not be getting much food because the people around them, the family around them, are very poor. And, and if you have two or three in a household that aren't contributing, it's a very big drag on, on a, a stressed household already. Yep. Hey, uh, Sebastian and Ralph. It, no, it's okay. If you want to, if you want to talk, you got to come here and sit next to me, and we can we can have a conversation. Yeah, you got to be back on camera. It's okay. <laughs>
these microphones are just sensitive. Um, <laughs> so um, specifically, like I remember Birga telling me how um, you know with the the funds that you've received, you improved the houses, made it so they don't have to crawl. You know, what what improvements have you made to the houses specifically for these handicapped people? Well, we've started off by repairing their roof. It used to leak, and they'd be in the middle of these terrible downpours, and it would be leaking all around them. So we did that. We repaired some of the walls. And then we put in latrines uh, with a cement um, pathway to it so that they could get from their house to the latrine. And then just recently, we brought in running water, which uh, in this sound, doesn't sound like much, but in this culture is a very big deal and now they have a spigot that's right outside of their uh, front door and they can slide themselves out turn on the spigot and have all the water they need um, just for my own curiosity like um, if they can't use their legs what, what did you guys ever think of like wheelchairs for them <clears throat> um, their arms are also impaired they're very weak and not only have we thought about it, but they have three wheelchairs sitting in their little storage area, and they haven't been able to get into them. So uh, it's one of those things that didn't help that much. Okay. And then what does it take to keep this project going and growing? Well, the main thing is, is we're, our, our uh, objectives are relatively limited because uh, of practicality, but we're basically trying to provide food, clothing, and you know, basic life essentials. So you can't really cure their life, but you can improve their quality of life. We hope so. Okay. We hope so. And do you mind telling me, kind of like uh, retelling that to me in your own words, um, like you know, while we can't improve medically, we can't improve their lives, but we can improve their quality of life. Um, even though we can't um, improve the disease, they have basic needs that because of their disease are not being met. Namely, they are uh, crippled and so they can't get out to get food. They barely can make it. So we bring the food in, clothing and other articles. An example of one thing, a luxury item, that we brought a radio over some time ago understand that it's not working and we have to replace it but just to have a radio to play during the day when you're sitting 24 hours a day on a dirt floor and you can't get out seems to be a, a, a item that will improve their lives and then can you also just uh, say to me that you know how this program is uh, provided you know through HAS and, <coughs> and to kind of thank the donors of this program yes uh, yes, we, the, the first uh, letter in this whole program was a letter of, from Met Dillon Waugh to the then uh, CEO of the organization. He in turn asked myself and another doctor who was here then to go over and then explore this. And since that time it's really been a private undertaking, but as we needed things like transportation and other things that we couldn't provide, we asked the hospital to partner with us so that uh, we could, uh, with their help, uh, do some of these uh, things that we're trying to accomplish. So just one quick, one last sentence on this. Can you just say to me, um, you know, this program is made possible by the donors and with the help of HIS? 
Let me let me just. Uh, However you want. Yeah. Well, it's not that way. It's strictly David and myself. We're okay. we're taking care of all the expenses. Okay. Oh. And, and have done that all. And and that's that's not a problem. No. 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 I know. And that's so. You may want to rephrase that. Of course. We're not really looking for donors. We we, we want to sh show that this is yet another thing that the hospital is doing, regardless of how it gets funded. That is uh, another part of its mission. Great. So if you want to rephrase yeah. that. So maybe you want to say this is just the small part of, you know, all that HAS does yeah. every year. Yeah. Yeah. This is an example of what HAS is doing, not only here in the hospital, and this is another thing that always amazes me. They're out, in the, uh, out into the community helping all of these other situations like cripple people and tree planting and all of that. It's part of their total... Uh, uh, undertaking. Great. Okay, so I'll it was extremely difficult to learn that simply because this condition was without a cure and the effects of it on the body were so difficult to look at, it's no surprise that this video ended up on the cutting room floor. People don't want to witness a hopeless situation, which makes it even more difficult to raise funds and give aid in the simplest way possible with a roof over their head, with accessible spaces food, and a radio to listen to broadcasts, just like this one. The politics of aid are not an unfamiliar theme in global health, and the subject of one of the films released for this year's Global Health Film Festival, Congo Calling, is about three European development aid workers who were forced to question, how helpful is the help of the West? The seventh edition of the Global Health Film Festival is just five weeks away, as always, the lineup features new and neglected stories from around the world, including Turkey, Japan, India, DRC, Somaliland, with a big focus this year on refugee and migrant health, gender violence, planetary health, and the politics of international aid. Find out more and get your festival pass at globalhealthfilm.org. And that's it for this month. Back next month with more from my own correspondent. Do join me.